Yes, it is. And I'm delighted to say, joining me, zooming in all the way for, I'm going to say Iceland, but I'm sure it's probably not now. Max Newsom. Hello, Max. Hello, Stuart. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm assuming you're back from Iceland now. Yes, that's right. I'm actually back in glamorous Ely. Uh, where oh. if there wasn't a glacier, it has melted today. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's as picturesque, I guess, in the right light. <laughs> Much less so. Um, <laughs> very few, very few polar bears swimming past. <laughs> yeah, I must. Have, I've never seen one there. Um, <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, you are, of course, a film director. Uh, we've had the privilege of, of chatting to you on the show before, and uh, I've, I've shared a beer with you uh, before as well. Um, great to get you back on. Um, we're here to talk about your, your latest release, Iceland is Best. Um, let's start about sort of where the idea formed. What, what brought this uh, masterpiece into being? That's so kind, yes. Um, and it's great to be back. So thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I think all films begin somewhere deep down underground and then they suddenly sort of explode to the surface like a geyser or a volcano and it can sometimes blow you off your feet at the most unexpected moments. And I was working in Los Angeles at the time. I was the head of a development for a film fund, which basically meant that I looked at lots of scripts and spoke to directors who were coming into try and jump on the Hollywood dream. And we were offering sort of 10 or $15 million a picture at the time, and we were hoping to fund four or five a year. And it was like opening a door to a deluge, suddenly sort of flying fish, eels, sharks, whales came crashing in through the front door. And uh, it was a quite a chastening experience because you realize just how desperate people were to get their film made in Hollywood. and back in that day, which was around 2005 or six, they wanted to get a three picture deal with a, an American studio. And the idea would be you'd make an independent film somehow, it would look great, and you'd sign up with Universal Pictures or Warner Brothers or 20th Century Fox, you know, something like that. So we were right slap bang on the main road to that destination, because most people don't get 10 or $15 million to make a, an independent movie. No, that's a big, been, big budget, right? It, it is, it is exactly. I mean, most people are scraping by on hundreds of thousands or just over a million pounds, dollars or euros. That's the sort of common price yeah. point for such things. Um, and some of them are you know, well under $50,000, at least historically. There was a movie called Clerks, which did extraordinarily well. I think that was $27,000. There was Robert Rodriguez starting film, um, Il Mariachi, and I think that was also under $35,000. So, you know, there is precedent for all of that. So for us to come and offer 10 or $15 million was complete insanity, really. <laughs> um, and I found the whole thing quite wearing because people scenting blood in a way or scenting their future would trample over the top of you to get what they wanted, especially in America. Yeah, it must be quite and, kind of tough, a big battle to, yes, it, to get that kind of thing. It is, it is. And, you know, if someone's waving that at the end of a sort of watch chain just out of reach, you know, they will throw themselves at you. So <laughs> I would, in the evenings, head off to a, a video rental store 
And back in the day, people were still renting DVDs. And I would, um, it was called Rocket Video, and it was on La Brea in uh, more or less the middle of, we're getting on for Hollywood, actually, in Los Angeles. And um, I was leafing through the various titles thinking, oh, I'll watch some European films because, you know, at least they mean something. At least the people who made this made it, you know, for a good reason rather than just chasing the market or chasing the next deal. Yeah. And uh, I noticed this pair of eyes looking at me from the other side of the room and they were beautifully shaped. I thought almost like an Eskimo set of eyes, sort of they went up at the corners in a way I wasn't expecting. And I couldn't tell what the gaze was saying to me. So... I walked over with my pile of videos and thumped them down on the desk and said, uh, so where are you from? And the pair of eyes and the person with them said, Iceland. And my jaw dropped. I just thought, <laughs> this is amazing. I've never met anybody from Iceland. I didn't know they could swim that far. You know, it was... <laughs> it, was way, sort yeah. of, it is a long way. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was aware of Iceland because, you know, Britain had cod wars with the Iceland back in, I think, the 70s and early 80s. And we lost. And, uh, you know, after all, they are Vikings. So, you know, you know better than to mess with the Icelanders. <laughs> and there one was um, standing in front of me. She was called Siri. Uh, and she had left Iceland, it turned out, age 20. But there's a little bit of a story about that. But age 20 and come to be an artist or an actress in Los Angeles. And she'd chosen to live in a beautiful hilly region just north of Los Angeles, and just south of Malibu called Topanga. So it's on the coast in some hills with some trees and orchards and glades. And it's quite Mediterranean, actually. Oh, wow. And it overlooks the Pacific. And it is one of the places you would choose to live if you knew about it. Yeah. Somehow she had found out about it in the freezing tundra of Iceland and decided that she would go there, age 17. So she told her parents one day and said, I'm going to Iceland. They said, well, when are you going? She said, today. And she had a bag packed. <laughs> wow. And uh, age 17, and she set off to the airport, which was only 1.2 kilometres away. But it took her four years to get there. And what oh happened in the way was that she more or less fell in love with someone who was with a friend who she was visiting just before she went to the airport, having left her parents' front door. And he was very determined she would stay in Iceland. So her big dream was suddenly derailed, but by love or so she thought, and it, it certainly felt like that for a long time, but he did have problems and he had a bad relationship with his family. And perhaps that partly explained why he was desperate to hang on to Siri, who was so full of hope and, and yes, she was a beautiful girl, but more than that, she has an extraordinary spirit. And I think that's what shines through and must have shone through when she was 17. It took her four years, as I say, to leave. And by then, there had been sort of terrible ructions in her world. There had been some kind of, uh, you know, she'd fallen into some bad habits, and he had especially. Um, and in fact, he, in the end, uh, took his own life. Um, but not before, when she tried to leave the airport, he rugby tackled to the ground, rugby tackled her to the ground and broke her leg. And wow. <laughs> anyway, the story unfolds. And... When I heard this, because I interviewed Siri over a period of five days, I thought this is going to make an amazing true-to-life story about being a teenager, leaving home. It's got all the elements any teenager story might have. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, she wanted to be an artist. So it's also got this thing about, you know, wanting to find your own voice. But, you know, as in all such stories, this is just a, another way of saying that we all need to try and find our own feet and our own voice. And this isn't easy when you leave home. Very often, as it were metaphorically, on the way to the airport, just when you think you're ready to go, something happens and it turns out you're not. So for me, this film is very much a story about wanting to leave, but not quite being ready, still needing to go, but not quite being ready. And then things suddenly click into place, but not after they've, not until they've gone very wrong. And then you find your way to the airport. So it's almost like one of those nature films where you see a bird flapping its wings about to take off. And then finally, yeah. the last time, it, 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 when it throws itself off the edge of the nest, finally, it actually gets to escape. And I found it very moving because I found leaving home, on the one hand, to be quite easy. You know, I was quite keen to get away and travel. And my mum hadn't been born in the UK, and maybe some of that was part of my experience of being me. Um, but actually, over the years, I kept coming back to Cumbria, where she lives, which is the Lake District. And um, it's very beautiful. And whenever London had beaten me up a bit, I went back there and thought, why have I, did I believe? <laughs> and Big I then ended up making two sets of friends, at least two sets of friends, you know, in London yeah. and in Cumbria. But I could never share the lives. You know, I could never get them to fix to get, fit together. So I think I had a lot of sympathy with Siri and her kind of, predicament um, and also you know as a side note Cumbria is very beautiful but it's like Iceland is Cumbria turned up to 11 yeah I guess so, so just the glaciers are a, still there <laughs> that's right exactly and the volcanoes are still smoking in some cases um, and so when I got to so basically to cut a long story short um, I, I, I came back from the US decided I'd rather make this sort of a film this kind of a story than perhaps the easy commercial thing. It's not easy. No, making no film is easy and is always some kind of a miracle. But I wanted it to be the right kind of a miracle because um, you barely survive a miracle, the miracle of making a film. And so <laughs> it had better be for the best reasons that you make a movie rather than not. So I came back and wrote the script and it didn't come out as a Ken Loach style, gritty, dirty neorealist <laughs> story of you know kitchen sinks and vomits it was actually came out a bit like a fairy tale and I don't know why this happened it's maybe because I've always liked children's stories and particularly illustrated children's stories and perhaps because I've never been to Iceland it just sort of fed into that part of my imagination that as you say was imagining volcanoes and glaciers um, but more than that I had this kind of hunch that in Iceland every day was Saturday that it was sort of timeless that whenever you landed there, it would just feel like Saturday morning when you were a kid and you had your bicycle and your pocket money, you know, and you ran off yeah. to the shop, in my case, to buy, you know, a packet of sweets, which you spent all morning eating. And it was a kind of delicious, glorious freedom, a way of being yourself outside your parents' control, but still somehow safe. <laughs> Every day is your own. And yeah. That's right, exactly. Yeah. So in its way that's a fairy tale on its own and happens every Saturday or at least in my childhood it did so that kind of stuck with me and I think that probably at a deep level explained why it came out that way um, maybe also something like Alice in Wonderland which has always struck me as an so utterly mystifying but beautiful story you know, maybe there's a bit of me that thought is you know could I tell a story like that so anyway I wrote the script and 
looked at it and was a bit terrified because it was quirky. It was, I thought, quite funny. Um, it had this sense, sense of every day being Saturday, but it wasn't written to a formula. Um, the only films I had in mind, actually, were films like Napoleon Dynamite, which is a great offbeat American indie film, um, which I highly recommend to people. Or yeah. more recently, there was a film called Juno, which um, was obviously oh, yeah. enormously expensive, uh, uh, successful too, which sort of has some qualities of those indie movies, although possibly you know stuck on with transfers rather than at a very deep level. Um, but it was a, both films inspired me to think that there could be an American audience for this kind of story as well, even though LA was the place I just left, although, you know, classically in the American myth, as it were, most indie films come from outside LA and tend to be born in a small town, because that's where people start dreaming about Hollywood, and then they make a film about their small town or trying to get away from it often, yeah. or not being able to get away from it as often. Um, and then go to LA. So there is a rich, you know, substratum of indie movies in America that tap into the same kind of desires. Um, but eventually I found uh, someone called Dan Kuro Shimno, I'd worked with uh, a few years before when he'd been at a film school uh, called the Met Film School, following a, a very successful career as a karaoke bar owner and a... Um, oh, wow. <laughs> And, and also a passion photographer. And he's also the 24th generation descendant of a famous samurai Japanese family. So actually earlier in his life, he'd been trained to be a samurai warrior and still oh has God. all the skills. I'd have been uh, more amazing. careful when I met him if I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, so I think, he was, I think he was a fourth down black belt judo by the time he was 15. So that's a, one amazing. of the many skills he had. Yeah. But anyway, so I was lucky and Dan sort of looked at this and said, um, I think we should make this into a film. And he approached his colleague, Will Randall Koth at No Reservations, and they decided they would send me to Iceland. And I'm just thinking, I said, I'd cut this story short. It's not short. I was trying to do better. <laughs> um, so I went to for 17 days and was just blown away by Iceland. It was hypnotising, mesmerising. You know, the volcanoes were all there. But it was almost as if they were suspended in some kind of mist or dream. And it was this only is later. the first I, time you've ever been to Iceland. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. But I'd written a whole script about the place. Yeah. But to my delight and astonishment, every day was Saturday. It was as if time had been <laughs> suspended. And I soon met some people and talked to them about the film through Siri, who actually came with me on that trip. Uh, we brought her over and she went to see her mum for the first time in a few years. And um, oh, nice. she kindly, kindly introduced us to some of her mates through her brother, who also works in the film industry. And um, they were, one of them was called Vigfus Gunnarsson, and he was a casting director. And he somehow took a shine to the project as I pitched it to him over a cappuccino in a bookshop in Reykjavik. And he said, look, I'll find you some actresses to audition for the role of this 17-year-old. I'll get you the best teenage actors in Iceland and you can meet a selection. So why don't you go off and look for some locations? So that's what I did. And eventually I ended up just following my gut in my instinct, I ended up in the Northwest of Iceland in a national park called the Snæfellsnes, And if you look at it on the map, it looks a bit like Brittany does in France, that kind of hand that's trying to get out of the sleeve. Yeah, uh, northwest right. of France. And that's what it's like up there. And I've got coast on both sides. And um, 
on the southern side, where you can occasionally see the sun, I found this little village called Arnestadi, uh, which is quite famous in Iceland because it's got giants buried underneath it, um, according oh, to them. I love and the myths over there. That's yes, exactly. And it's also a region where they have the little people who are almost like the Irish leprechauns, and they take them very seriously in Ireland. You know, if they're reputedly in a certain spot, they will bend a road around it so it doesn't go through it in the same way as the Irish won't build on such a site and wisely. And I just knew about, exactly. Well, I mean, I thought this is not nonsense, but I thought I'd be unlikely to sense anything. And one day when I was driving around that area, the Snifles Nest, suddenly all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and it felt as if I was being watched, but not by one pair of eyes, by a thousand pair of eyes. Oh, wow. And so I thought, the little people, here they are. You know, and I've never doubted their existence <laughs> since then. Um, anyway, they have some responsibility for what goes on in Iceland. So you have to be a little careful about, you know, the way you pay your dues and respects. So I came back from Snyfall's Nest, you know, jubilant that I'd found this wonderful village. And I then met um, about a dozen really fantastic, mature, talented and young actors who could play the role of the central character, who was now called Sigur rather than Siri. And of course, it wasn't the original story anymore. It was based upon it. It still had the same contours, but the characters within it were all somehow from my slightly lunatic imagination. <laughs> um, influenced by uh, but tall, the fairy tale. Yes, influenced by. That's right. And I've been influenced by my trip in Iceland, too, because I found that people sort of had the same way of talking as I kind of imagined they did talk, you know, in very good English, but accented, rather sing-song, but with a different take on the world and a different sort of sense of timing as well. So I came back really excited and said to Dan, Kuro and Will, look, I think we've got the locations. I think we're going to find the cast. Um, And I think we should shoot it on film stock, which is the traditional way of shooting films rather than digital, which is what 99% of people shoot films on these days. And the reason why you do that is because in my view, A, it's just more beautiful. B, um, it takes less money to finish and grade afterwards. Um, And C, it's simpler to deploy. It's just one cable, one small battery box, and it's made out of mechanical parts and it doesn't break down in the cold. Um, That's an important element where you're going. Very important. And and finally, (laughs) everybody really respects film. And, you know, every time you take it out of the can and put it in the magazine and put it on the back of the camera, there's this almost hush. And it's almost like a sacred moment. When you explain there's, you know, know, £1,200 worth of film stock in there that's going to cost, you know, probably another £4,000 to develop. And, you know, print, uh, scan into digital images, people take it more seriously. And it's also just nice to participate in a ritual in which the greatest filmmakers have excelled. So, you know, a bit of you wants to follow in their footsteps. So is that more of an old fashioned kind of way of filming? Yes, it is definitely. I mean, you know, it's slower, the cameras are heavier, um, but you don't have this video village behind you of cables and people staring into monitors, all of which have to be powered by batteries, which again, in a snowstorm is harder to do. Yeah. Um, And also for me, all that clutter gets in the way of filmmaking. You should, I think, be looking from sitting under the camera at the actor as close as you possibly can be. You should be feeling it and them. 
And for mm. me, it's like sitting next to a furnace. You know, sometimes it's so hot, I've actually had to walk several feet backwards from the, that eerie, as it were, just because I can't bear the emotional intensity. But it's, I think you know when it's a good shot and when the take has worked. And you don't, you shouldn't be staring at the screen and not making eye contact, you know, with your actors afterwards. So for me, it, it was always going to be the better system. Yeah. And in fact, you know, I'd made a film in which Kate Winslet had done a small role after Titanic called Plunge, which uh, we never quite got to finish, but which we hope to finish, uh, I think, probably in 2023. Um, and that was shot on film, albeit Super 16, which is just 35 millimeter film sliced in half to fit into a more mobile camera. Uh, it's the same chemical structure and you get the same sort of image, but when you blow it up for the big screen, it's slightly grainier. Anyway, so I just knew that film would work beautifully for Iceland. And fortunately, Dan Kuro, who's a DP, a cinematographer, he agreed. It took us a year to raise the money. And when we got back, um, it was exactly November. Um, but actually, come to, just jogging back, I went in March, April, and then I got there in November of that year to make a mood board where we took the actors up to the Snipers Nest, some of the girls we'd been, actresses we'd been auditioning, and tested them out in the cold with a small camera crew, with the right camera, with the lenses, which were very special. And it all worked beautifully. And we came back and we cut it to some music. And it was that which basically got us our investment for the film. So... At this stage, all I'm doing is following my intuitions. So uh, by doing a mood board, do you think that kind of helped you to sort of shape in, in your mind, I suppose, in the rest of the, the, the director of photography and everybody else kind of saw where we're going with it? I think it's absolutely essential because, yeah. of course, you don't know what you're going to get until you've had a first go. And if you go where with most of the right people and the right lenses especially, you'll have a very, and the right medium, you know, whether it's film or digital, you'll have a very good idea of what it's going to be like. And as a, yeah. a picture is worth a thousand words. So it's particularly if you, your words don't actually describe something which has not yet existed. So um, you have to make it exist before you can describe it. And so therefore a mood board is perfect. Yeah, so that worked out really well. It was really, really charming. And I still show it to people now when I'm talking about other projects, just to say, look, this is something... I think we would like to do with the next project. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's how the story came into being, really. You know, it was sort of um, made up in that kind of indie film way from a, you know, a spark, an idea, a human contact. And then following my intuition, I wrote a script, which I had no idea what it would like be like when it came out. And it was the way it was. And then I showed it to some people who didn't like it or didn't get it. And I showed it to a couple of people who loved it. Um, and then you sort of, jump from dot to dot, almost like from lily pad to lily pad until you, in my case, ended up in Iceland, being able to see that the script worked and with a cast that I felt would make the script work and with a budget that was just about big enough to give us a chance of making it. I guess in some ways it's almost like you're, you're, I could see this being a, a kind of coming of age story and a bit of a sort of breaking free for Sigur uh, and Siri in the real version, but almost for you. Um, going from working in the, the sort of big Hollywood budget films to go to do like an indie film in, in Iceland, it's almost like you're kind of um, living the living the story as well. I think so, exactly. I, I mean, I, I think you have to be connected to the story in an emotional way. And I found that whenever I was pitching the story to people, I would become very emotional. I mean, almost so, so much so that I found it hard to talk. 
yeah. which might seem incredible now. Um, but <laughs> I, I still, and I think that's always a good sign. And uh, yeah, so when, yeah. You know, when you get to make a film, suddenly it's almost like being thrown into the adult world again, you know, because up till now, yes, you're asking for real money. Yes, you're talking to <clears throat> real lawyers and real accountants and real casting directors. And in my case, you know, I got Judd Nelson from The Breakfast Club and uh, St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> who, I'd, who I'd met um, in LA when I was doing some auditions. And I'd got Tom Madden, who'd been in 13 Reasons Why. And I had Hel Helena Matson, who is having a, a very good moment in her career, who was Swedish but moved to LA when she was 16 or 17. So I'd, there were grown-up moments. You know, you fly in airplanes, you don't get any sleep. And by the time we started the film, I'd basically been working without a day off for about 90 days, I think. Wow. Um, some of which were sleepless because I was flying to and from America. So, you know, there were grown-up moments. But it wasn't until I saw the lighting truck parked outside, you know, uh, a village hut in Arnestapi that I knew we were really making a film and making my film. Um, uh, you know, Orson Welles said, you know, a, a film crew in a studio, which is one of those old sound stages, is the best toy box, you know, any boy could ever wish for uh, or any person could ever wish for, of course. Um, yeah. But... When you film me outside in November, where there are only three and four hours of daylight and there are snowstorms, and the wind can suddenly whip up to 50, 60, 70, or even stronger miles per hour in a space of about three minutes, you are thrown in at the deep end. And, pretty dangerous, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we often had to stop filming because the lights were swaying around on their stalks, even though they were roped down in four corners. Wow. Um, and the sky had gone from being bright blue to sort of dark, dark grey in a matter of, you know, a few moments, it seemed. <laughs> and it was actively dangerous at various points. And, you know, it was minus 15 degrees centigrade. And there were days when we had to use hair dryers to unfreeze the jaws of the actors so they could actually deliver their lines. Oh, my God. That's and cold. We were, and we were standing around, those of us lucky enough to be in them, in, you know, in very warm jackets. You know, we got from a very good, uh, from 66 degrees north. I think without them, we probably all have died on this location. But <laughs> Survival technique was, was exactly <laughs> Exactly. We look like polar explorers, basically. And um, <laughs> the daylight's a problem. You know, when you are moving a big 35 millimetre camera around, it also takes an hour to move it and set up the lighting again, at least an hour. So... Yeah. You try to do it as little as possible. And although in indie films, there's almost a method for doing this. Um, still, if a light is coming and going and uh, a car drives, you know, from 10 miles away slowly towards you or a shot along a sort of straight Icelandic road, you do have to wait sometimes. And yeah. it means more lost time. So we were constantly, you know, falling behind on the schedule and struggling to get what was called, what the Americans call coverage, but the fact we were there with this beautiful tool, with film stock, with these superb, amazing, unique lenses meant that practically every time we pointed that kit at something, the result was astounding. Um, and of course, the actors were not, of course, but fortunately for us, did their part very well. You know, I, I would say, looking back, you know, it would have been interesting to have made the film with Americans pretending to be Icelanders and just, as it were, made an American indie film that happened to be in Iceland. Yeah. Um, 
And I think that that way round, I would have been even more slap bang in the American indie film tradition. But a bit like you say with Siri, you've got to sort of work out your own way forwards. And I was determined mm. to work with Icelandic cast as much as possible. I was determined you know, to work in Iceland rather than shoot in Sweden or Norway and pretend it was Iceland. Um, and I very much wanted to take the audience to a real place through real Icelandic people and sort of build the idea of this universal experience, but in something very particular and, and personal to the original storyteller and perhaps personal to me, and certainly personal, if you like, to the landscape and the actors. So we always had that in mind. Um, it sounds so authentic to have the, you know, beyond the location there filming during the the time that breaks when you can, when the light's just right and the, it's not terrible weather. And with all Icelandic people, I mean, people in Iceland, have they seen it? And what are they, their thoughts on, on well, how it's funny, you know, we, we were terrified after, you know, after the film was made. Um, we screened it to the co-producer um, who is um, Icelandic and she loved it. And I think that one of the astounding things is that People in Iceland don't film on film stock anymore. Astounding for them. They film on digital and they also tend to tell gritty stories grittily on gritty video. Yeah. Okay. And it, it digital. And basically it's all a bit desperate. Um, whereas we wanted to obviously make a fairy tale. You know, I wanted it to be a modern fairy tale with beautiful, big images, big landscapes, the faces of the actors, um, telling a story. Um, in a way that kind of sank into you, almost like the colours at sunset. And so, you know, we researched music and found Icelandic singer-songwriters and found some very talented ones, in fact, JFDR, Jófridia, who is the lead singer of that, and she and her twin sister sing in a band called Pascal Pinon, and they're amazing. But also we worked with um, a Sophia Palm, who's now called... Uh, she now calls herself something else that comes to me in a second. Um, but she sang songs for us and they were absolute life of a moth is what she calls herself now. And she's embarked on a very successful uh, solo singing career. And we got her to play her guitar in a hut somewhere, initially in Iceland, then in Sweden, singing oh, wow. a very beautiful song, which sort of fitted the mood. And yeah. So I wanted it to feel like a children's storybook that you almost look at before you go to bed, but with adult elements, you know, fairy tales are for adults as well. And they come out of adult experience and they are about the dark places in life you can go to by accident, despite your best intentions, but also about the brightness that sort of rims all of that. You know, and I think sometimes fairy tales can be quite dark, but have a very bright rim behind them. And I think, you know, we've ended up with something that is, a bit of both, um, but ultimately ends, hopefully. Um, and I think that's all you can yeah. do with a story sort of thing, if it's going to be as authentic, as you say, as, as sometimes stories need to be. So, yeah, it was a fabulous experience. And much later on, we were screening the film in a series of uh, Q&A sessions in and around London, and an Icelandic family walked in off the street because they had seen the uh, poster Oh, and wow. they sat there and I just thought, oh, my God. And at the end, <laughs> they stayed. And the wife, who was Icelandic, said, I have watched your film and I have enjoyed it. I think it is about Iceland and it is Iceland. 
And I, uh, you, know, you could have picked me up on the floor. So I was so pleased. And there have been other Icelandic people who in the UK have seen this and said, this is just like all my friends and me. And I thought, okay, you know, maybe we won Lovely. the best after all. So, yeah, yes. And it has sold to Iceland and it's screened over there. And, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, it, we hope that they've also enjoyed it. Um, Yes, as it, it sold, in fact, to seven or eight territories around the world, you know, surprisingly, including places like the Middle East um, and also very recently wow. Mongolia, um, which <laughs> I was absolutely thrilled about. Amazing. But, um, and America and UK and Ireland. And in fact, the, um, the uh, digital release was on the 27th of June. And our DVD release is, guess, the 4th of July. Um, so Yay. that's available. And um, certainly the digital release uh, you can find through iTunes and Apple TV. Um, and I think probably if you Google it, you can find it elsewhere. Um, and the DVD is available in the usual kind of retailers. Um, so, yeah. Um, Fantastic. So it's out for us to, to enjoy on, on streaming uh, or we can get on DVD. And yeah, also... exactly. I hope on the biggest screen you've got with the, the, with the best speakers you have. I mean, we made it for cinema and those of us those are lucky enough to have seen it on the big film. Not lucky enough, but fortunate enough you know, for us to have seen it on the big screen. Found it a very immersive experience. So I'd ask you to switch your phones off and watch it and enjoy it. You know, put your feet up with some popcorn and... Just let Definitely. yourself be taken away somewhere perhaps you haven't been before. I, mean, I think that's like you mentioned it being in, available in places like Mongolia, I guess for all over the world, Iceland this is a magical place because it's so quite often detached from what we're used to and wherever we're from. So it's so nice to kind of immerse yourself in a, a whole new world watching this film. Yes, thank you. I very much hope so. You know, I think, you know, some of the most exciting films you see are the ones that, take you somewhere completely unexpected and show you some new things, you know, although the story underlying them usually are very familiar. Um, and I think that's yeah. the beauty of films. It, it sort of takes you out, but also takes you back inside yourself. And it's, that's a very special gift for the medium. And, you know, I, I hope especially that people will still go to cinemas for as long as there are cinemas for them to go to, because, you know, the big screen experience is incomparable, but, you know, I've done my own fair amount of crying in front of videos at home when I thought no one was watching. <laughs> so I think, you know, that has that place too. And, you know, yeah. I think film can be really inspiring and especially so if you're not expecting it. Powerful stuff. Max, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us about it. It sounds amazing. Uh, it's a really sweet story about breaking free and achieving your dreams. Just a quick reminder where people can, can stream it and enjoy it. Yeah, iTunes, Apple TV uh, would be where I would start. And um, and as I say, DVD is now available as of the 4th of July, so today. Lovely. So thank you, Stuart. That's been great to talk to you again. And, um, you know, I look forward to perhaps coming back and talking about my next project. So that looking forward to that as well. That would be lovely. So Iceland is best is out now. Um, you mentioned Plunge maybe coming soon. We'll, we'll oh, yes, I'd love that. You. Yes, exactly. That, that, there's a big story, which unfortunately won't take any less time to tell, but <laughs> it's magical <laughs> in its own way. That's it. It's another fairy tale for another day. Great. Thank you, Stuart. Max, where can we keep in touch with you and, and, and follow you and, and track your Oh, yeah. Oh, lovely. Um, Instagram, uh, there's Custard Corp. 
which is all one word, custard as in the thing you put in your apple crumble, corp as in corporation, all one word. And there's also Iceland is best movie. Uh, so, and there's a Facebook page too for Iceland is best movie, um, where we pe- post pictures from the film, have some clips and uh, give you a chance to sort of get a slightly better idea of, of what the film is about, perhaps. You do a behind the scenes uh, shots as well. We do have some behind the scenes footage, and we actually we should start putting that up. It's a sort of like a ten minute show, I think. Um, yeah, I think we'll nice. find a place for that too. Lovely, Max. Thanks so much. We'll speak to you soon. Yes, lovely, Stuart. Thank you. Bye bye. Phoenix ninety eight FM. Go to phoenixfm.com and listen to online guest interviews. Check the events for your area and listen to great radio online. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the interview, then please share it. Uh, If you didn't enjoy it, then share it anyway. (laughs) For more guest interviews like this, or to get the next one delivered directly to your device, subscribe to the Now You're Talking podcast. You'll find it wherever you get your podcasts from. And the whole thing has become a huge library featuring well over 150 guest interviews from music, film, comedy icons to community heroes, local legends, stars of the future and just about everybody in between. A treasure trove of life's stories from all sorts of incredible people. So for more interviews, podcasts, videos, poems and books, everything I do is available at stuartpink.com.